Overworked, a podcast. Bold storytelling. Balanced lives. Brighter futures. Hi, everyone. It's Moss Me again. And we are here today with Challen, Caitlin, and Jill. And since it's October, we've decided that we would be amiss if we didn't talk about breast cancer awareness. We'd also want to talk about another variety of issues in the healthcare realm. To start, the reason that we are honoring Breast Cancer Awareness Month is because it's the most common type of cancer with over 280,000 cases expected in the United States in 2021, and that's new cases. The next most common cancers are prostate cancer and lung cancer. While there are cases of men getting breast cancer, it most commonly affects women. Luckily, there is a lot of research for breast cancer, so we've been able to detect it earlier and decrease the number of deaths due to the disease. I sadly had a good friend pass a few years ago. Um, She discovered she had stage four breast cancer after having her second child. What she thought was pain from her milk hardening was actually the cancer getting worse. Um, She went on to live seven years um, with experimental treatments, Um, but it was definitely a case where she just didn't know the symptoms and Had she gotten checked earlier, you know, we'd still have her. So unfortunately, there are still a lot of women's health issues that don't get their fair share of attention. And part of this, I feel like, is because they only really affect women. And Chalyn, I I know you've had your own share. Yeah, I'll talk a little bit about mine here in a minute. But I think um, we wanted to take the opportunity to talk about healthcare gap between men and women in the context of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, just because it's a really good um, moment in time where everyone is kind of paying attention. They're looking out for preventative measures. And I think they're just more open-minded to hearing suggestions for how we can improve healthcare writ large. Um, So the healthcare gap is really important to me um, because I've recently experienced it um, because it is So super top of mind for me. Um, And I'll get into that. Hopefully I don't bore anybody. You're probably so sick of hearing about me and my pregnancy journey. (laughs) But hopefully someone learned something from it. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so the healthcare gap between men and women has gained a lot of steam over the past couple of years, um, particularly since 2017 following the Me Too movement. In the past four years, every industry has addressed how women are often silenced and medicine is no different. I actually talk to my husband about this pretty often. I think most of our listeners know he is a physician assistant um, and consistently plays devil as an advocate to me, um, which is why we're married, uh, because he's a strong minded man. Um, But he he and I have some really good discussions about how we experience life differently. He always takes a very obviously prescriptive medical perspective in these conversations. Um, And I'm obviously probably more emotional, (laughs) but um, this is a true issue so much so that um, BBC Future did an entire series on the healthcare gap between men and women. They note that women are less likely to have their pain treated, their symptoms taken seriously, or to be given a diagnosis than men. Their bodies and the conditions that primarily affect them are less likely to have been studied in clinical trials, um, which make effective treatments difficult to find. And Moss, I know you'll touch on this later, but um, the common body type is even, um, you know, based on a male's body type. 
So um, even medical products used only by women, like the pill, are often based on male bodies. So there's just a a very strong slant um, when, you know, 50% of people who need to be cared for are women. So I thought this was a really interesting topic to cover, um, especially, again, in light of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But my specific example, which, again, hopefully I'm not boring anybody. I luckily had a really easy pregnancy. I know a lot of women have a a hard time getting pregnant. Um, That is an entirely other topic. But I did notice a a lack of knowledge about things that you'd think would be pretty simple to solve for. And there just isn't a solution yet, um, maybe because there aren't enough uh, women in the research sector to bring it to light. But so anyway, I think what stood out to me most during my pregnancy And during my delivery is that during the entire pregnancy, I had two ultrasounds. I have friends who had them, you know, weekly after 12 weeks. Uh, There is a lot of variable in that case. I think usually if you're an older woman, which whenever I get pregnant again, I will be considered a geriatric pregnancy, which is super fun to talk about. Um, Yes, they still use that phrase for women who are pregnant over 35. Great. (laughs) But anyway, there there are classes for, you know, more frequent testing, um, deeper testing and how insurance will cover testing based on age or previous issues that you might have had for me because everything went healthy and smoothly. I only had two ultrasounds which is great that you don't have to go through all of that, but it also means there's a lot that you don't know about until you start to go deliver. So for me, I ended up pushing for three or four hours trying to have Kedzi, which was crazy, let me tell you. And then it ultimately had to go in for a C-section because she had her umbilical cord wrapped around her neck. And it turns out that my pelvis is just too narrow to even ever deliver a child over five pounds, which is pretty small for a child. So all of that just kind of got me thinking, you know, there were several questions that went through my head, like, why weren't there any diagnostic tests to predict whether my body was capable of a quote unquote regular vaginal delivery? Why do people constantly talk about how a C-section delivery is simple? Uh, I have to be really honest with you. It is not. It was terrifying. And um, like I could not have prepared for it no matter how much I read. And when women do get a C-section, major abdominal surgery, literally slicing through seven layers of your body, why is there only one post-op appointment? And then my last question was, why was my delivery considered an emergency room visit, carrying with it an extra $350 copay and an extra almost $3,000 charge to my insurance when it was a planned during my delivery week window and non-emergent? That is one of the highest pink taxes I've ever heard of. And I do think that it is um, particular to my the hospital that I delivered at, but um I think it's just one of the examples that had I not read every line item of my medical bill, I wouldn't have known that I was being charged for extra services. That's probably not just a female issue, but uh, that is just my experience. And I know everybody has different experiences, whether it's going for a dermatology or maybe you have, you know, heart palpitations and it's just claimed as anxiety um, or, you know, I think the most prominent because you go to the doctor so frequently during pregnancy, that experience. But we've all had an issue where you've gone to the doctor and been a little bit dismissed. So Moss, I know you've had your own fair share. You've just mentioned your friend who, you know, had a, a 
a missed breast cancer issue. Um, is there anything that you have experienced like this that you want to share? Um, I think, you know, there's great doctors who are both men and women. I just personally feel more comfortable with the female doctor because I feel like when I'm understanding my symptoms, she knows the female body and can kind of be like, oh, okay, I understand where you're coming from. Um, so I feel like it's about being heard and then in some ways feeling validated about your issue and pain, not a dismissive like, oh, those are just cramps, they'll go away, you know, because sometimes cramps can be debilitating. Um, you know, I think we, Chalyn, you and I always joke that if men had periods, they would probably get a week off of work every month. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things, but the rules are not made by women, right? So another interesting thing we found while researching for this pod was, um, according to Dr. Kim Templeton, she's the past president of the American Medical Women's Association and professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, medical education was set up to teach um, that a 154 pounds male was the norm. And everyone else was a variant of that. So when you think about that, um, of course, you know, some of our problems just kind of fall by the wayside because it's a variant and not the norm, right? And speaking of feeling dismissed at the doctor's office, the Today Show um, is also doing an ongoing project exploring the experiences of real patients, the momentum among doctors to confront gender biases, and what women can do to be heard. In the Dismiss survey, um, they said that over half of women think gender discrimination by doctors is a very serious problem compared to only 36% of men. I think the other thing that we have to talk about is that there's bias in race as well. According to an article in NPR, black women are three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. And a lot of this is because they're not able to diagnose the illness correctly, um, often socioeconomic issues. Um, so we're actually looking at, you know, you hear a lot about the insurance problems in the medical industry, but there's another real problem that I feel like doesn't get enough airtime. And, you know, speaking of misdiagnosed or dismissed, Jill, you have a great story about this. Yeah. So um, for those who don't know, which is probably all of our listeners, um, I am type one diabetic. I have been since I was 20 months old, but getting to that diagnosis was kind of a roundabout way of finding out. Um, so if you aren't familiar with the, what the symptoms are of type one diabetes before it's diagnosed, they're often confused with the flu. Usually if the child is in DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, they are throwing up. They are usually sweating through clothes, extremely thirsty. They also will go to the bathroom a lot and they kind of just have this like overwhelming craving for water, <laughs> which as a 20 month old is kind of odd. Usually you probably want like a bottle of milk, but um, apparently in my case, I literally was crawling across the table, drinking everyone's water. And that's when my mom was like, okay, something's seriously wrong. Like, let's go take her to the doctor. So they took me to um, the hospital and the doctor saw me and basically dismissed it and said like, oh no, I'm very sure she has the flu. Here's an antibiotic and sent my mom out the door. And as my mom was like getting discharged and going through the paperwork, the nurse who was um, checking us out, I guess, was like, something's not adding up here. This isn't what it appears to be. 
you should really follow up with a separate doctor. And so my mom did obviously. Um, and the doctor checked my sugar, which if you don't know, like checking your sugar takes seconds. It's literally just a finger prick and putting it into a meter. Um, and my sugar was 652. So a normal range, um, is around hundred, give or take 200 is considered pretty high. Um, so 652, especially for a 20 month old little baby was like ridiculous. And I, I was throwing up, like I said, I was sweating through my clothes. I was going to the bathroom a lot. My mom was giving me a bottle of water and I would finish it and throw it at her before she could even leave the room and ask for more. And so, yeah, all of those can be confused as the flu, but all it took to correct the diagnosis would have been a simple blood test, not like a blood test that you get normally in like a blood lab, like <laughs> literally a finger prick. Um, and so had that nurse not pulled my mom aside when we were discharged, I probably would have died from DKA and wouldn't obviously be here today. So granted, type one diabetes isn't something that only affects women. Obviously it affects um, men as well, but um, in that particular instance, my mom was dismissed as, you know, maybe not knowing what she was talking about in the doctor's opinion. Um, and this is also, you know, 20 years ago. So type one diabetes was not very common. And at the time I was the youngest one that that practice had ever seen. So it might not have been top of mind, but it was fairly easy to diagnose. And because of me, that hospital now has a rule where if any kid comes in and displays any sign that could be type one diabetes, you have to check their sugar. So, yeah. First of all, thank you for sharing, Jill, because that it's such a great example of, I think, one of the challenges of medicine, which is so many illnesses present themselves the same. Um, so it's hard to I mean, for instance, right now, you know, COVID looks like the flu looks like RSV looks like everything kind of looks the same, especially as we go into winter. Um, so it's hard to diagnose. So I think one of the key takeaways of your example is just cover your bases, especially now as a mom, knowing that if, you know, my daughter ever shows those issues, I'll make sure to at least say like, hey, did you check for that? So there's a little bit of awareness. But I think the other thing that really um, stood out to me in that story is that a nurse stood up to a doctor, which in so many cases is just faux pas. You don't really hear of it. And I feel like that's the same with the patient. You know, like a patient, it's not going to fight a doctor. They're the expert. And a nurse, it still is very traditionally hierarchical in medicine. Um, so kudos to that nurse for, for saying something to your mom. For sure. And that's not to say that, you know, we don't trust doctors or anything like that. We absolutely do. Um, but in that particular instance, it could have ended very differently than it did. And I think you bring up an important point. Um, you know, whenever someone needs surgery, we always tell them go for a second opinion and not because the first doctor is wrong, but what if there's something else that could be done? Right. Um, so I think that the one great thing we have at our disposal is lots of different doctors that we can go ask questions from. Right. So I think it's important to use the research you have. And, um, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit because it ties into this conversation as well. Um, John Hopkins actually published four tips in talking to a doctor. And I thought this was interesting. Um, and, you know, being a consultant, this is kind of how I would approach meetings. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. But the first is simply set an agenda. 
Doctors are busy. They have maybe 20 minutes to see you. So you want to make sure you ask your most important questions first and ask them again if you don't understand, but make sure you understand and set that agenda. And um, second is be honest. And I think this is really important. You know, when, when the doctor asks you, you know, how many drinks do you have a week? Be honest and, and let them know. If they say, have you been smoking? Let them know. Um, because who knows um, what different medicines can affect you um, or what allergies might come up. So it's very important to give them your full medical history. The third one that Johns Hopkins said was asking questions. And um, again, having the doctor repeat if you didn't understand and then repeating it back to the doctor to make sure that you got it. And I think this is really important because there's so many big words to, to medicines, to symptoms, to um, illnesses. And so making sure that you understand what you have. And I've gone so far in the past to ask the doctor, can I record this? Um, just because I want to make sure I get all of it. Typically, doctors don't have a problem with that. So I'll just put on my microphone recorder on my iPhone and get it recorded just so later on I can go back and be like, wait, I think they said this. The other thing I've done before is write things down. Um, so if they bring up one of those big words, literally like, wait, how do you spell that? And then just so you can go on WebMD later and look it up and, you know, scare yourself to death, basically. And the last and fourth thing is working collaboratively. Um, I think you want to think of your doctor as one of your health partners, just like you go to the gym and you work with a trainer and, you know, they be kind, of, kind of become your workout partners. Doctors are your partner in your best health. So a critical part of the conversation is just saying simply to the doctor that I understand all the treatments, all the risks and all the benefits but can you please help me compare these to other treatments? Um, because maybe what they're suggesting is not totally right for you. Um, the other thing is, is what if um, the medicine isn't covered by your insurance? And then you can ask the doctor, is there a generic one that's not covered by my insurance and I can't afford it? Is there something else that's out there? What about, you know, vitamins? Like, are, you know, so just finding out what else can help your body. Um, and, you know, doctors are willing to help help you and, and I would say if they're not, you find another doctor. I think that's a really, really good point, Moss. From just the conversations that I have with my husband. So he's in orthopedic surgery. They do, His specific surgery is spine. Um, and so oftentimes the patients are actually frustrated because the doctor does say, have you done everything to exhaust your options before surgery? Because surgery can be dangerous regardless. You're being put under. So if you go to a doctor whose first response is get surgery, be leery, right? Like their whole um, point is to try to take care of you before having to put you under the knife. Things like physical therapy or changing your diet. Um, a lot of times, you know, the way you would carry weight can make other parts of your body function differently. So things like that for sure should be taken into consideration. And the other piece of that, Moss, I love, you're totally right. They have no time. When you get a doctor in the room, they're going through a checklist of questions and trying to get you out of the room because they are probably already 20 minutes behind on their next patient. Um, so I love that just going in with an agenda and being prepared to have all your questions ready um, is a really great point. And one of the questions I would advise is 
Does the diagnosis that you are recommending or suggesting I have present differently in men and women, people of different ages, different genders? Um, Because I think what that does is trigger the doctor to take themselves um, a step further in the diagnosis to say, do I have any bias around this patient or this illness that I'm not considering? And I think just by challenging the question and just repositioning it, it may open up the conversation and maybe, you know, spark a new idea from for the doctor. So actually, that was one of my solutions. I, I had done a little research on this, too. And Moss went from the patient perspective, which I love. I just wanted to see if there are resources out there for doctors. One, I think a give me is that more women are becoming doctors. So hopefully that gets a little bit gets rid of the bias a little bit. But some of the um, ways to remove bias for medical professionals, including gender, race, age, all of those things, and, you know, remove the bias from the equation are to have diverse healthcare teams. We've talked about the importance of diversity constantly. Everybody knows where Moss and I stand on that. <laughs> we even talked about it in Rishi's podcast. Yeah. On artificial intelligence. And he said you need diverse authors to do the coding. So same concept applies really as diverse healthcare teams. Absolutely. And again, to Moss's point, asking open-ended questions that elicit um, a wider range of answers is helpful. Substitution was one. Um, if there is bias slipping into her patient interaction, um, doctors recommend um, substituting a different gender for the question, like I was alluding to earlier. Data collection and analysis, again, getting a wider breadth of research. Um, checklists and guidelines. This is one that I think is really important to medical field. Um, a lot of times in ER rooms, they'll have, you know, entire uh, kiosks set up for a specific illness so that it's simple for them to run through the standard process of checking for something that might be kind of a general illness that they may come in, they may see come in. Um, and then training opportunities, just making sure that um, there's continuous education. I know Kevin, my husband, has to do this. Uh, he has to meet a set number of hours per year. And I think that's just a really good way of, of keeping any medical professional up to date on the newest things that are going on. Um, we had a few other things we can talk about. I mean, pain tolerance stuck out to me. I thought that was kind of interesting um, that women are often not prescribed opioids and instead are considered psychiatric patients. For instance, maybe they're exaggerating or doctors think they're exaggerating or it's all in their heads. What? <laughs> Enough said. Caitlin, do you want to actually talk about self-advocacy and phobias? I can definitely do that. This is something that I've been pretty open about. Um, I wrote about this in college for some class. I don't remember. Um, And it's also something that I've been pretty open about with uh, family and friends as well. But um, I am severely phobic of needles. I say that uh, out loud. And a lot of times the response that I get from people is, oh, me too. Or, oh, I don't like them either. Oh, like that, that sort of commiseration. And um, while I appreciate that from friends and uh, other people, um, it's actually been a really difficult thing to deal with, with doctors and nurses, because they kind of expect that they've dealt with stuff like this all the time. They know what's going to happen. They say, okay, we'll lay you down. And that's and everything will be okay. Um, 
And what happens when I go in even for a booster shot or for a blood draw is that I go into shock, I knock out, and I have um, I have seizures basically on the floor. Um, and I can explain that to a doctor over and over again, and it surprises them every single time when it actually happens. It actually, my dad is a paramedic, um, and when I was my my stepdad actually, so. My parents got married when I was 10 at 11 years old or something like that. He took me to my first doctor's appointment. My mom had explained what happens and kind of prepped him. And he was like, okay, I get it. And it still like surprised him that it came out of nowhere. Um, so even, even someone who works really closely with medicine and knew me personally just didn't buy it on the first round, you know? So as far as self-advocacy goes, I... I've gotten better as I get older at stopping the conversation and saying, no, I need you to actually understand that these are the exact things that are going to happen and the timeline that it happens in. Um, really knowing my own body and knowing the the buildup and the signs. Um, and then the other thing has been bringing an advocate with me. Um, when I went to go get the COVID shot, we went to kind of a general um I guess a clinic, basically, it was kind of an open area in a warehouse where maybe 50 people at a time were getting the booster shot. And I brought Greg with and I gave him the rundown. Greg is my fiance for listeners who don't know. Um, I brought him with, gave him the rundown, handed him an ice pack and some gummy bears and said, listen, this is going to take seven minutes. Please be prepared. <laughs> um, and that has actually been really, really helpful because when when he um when I told Greg, he actually did take the time to listen to it and to stand up for me when I was knocked out on the floor. So self-advocacy can be you standing up for yourself, but it can also be identifying someone who can do it on your behalf if you don't think you can. Um, so that's my, that's my little story. Working on that still, but yeah, always, always make sure that you have your own best interests in mind too. I, just, I think that's a great point. Just it's crazy. That is an extreme reaction, obviously. So a doctor's first take is probably to be a bit dismissive to be like, OK, you're being dramatic. But when you say that you have physically fallen over and passed out because of a needle, at what point do do they take you seriously? It's not that that's not an exaggeration for you to say I pass out. Yeah. And I think. The thing that actually helped the last time was that I had never worn an Apple watch before during one of these situations. So I have the watch on. I can show my doctor now that this is the exact time that it's going to peak at this level of a heart rate and it is going to drop down to 40 and it will come back up after. But I can prove it with data now, you know, um, which, again, we can't do that all the time with every instance. But uh, that helped a lot, actually. Actually, the Apple Watch does help quite a bit, but it also like freaks you out because <laughs> I, um, while I've been sick the last two weeks, at one point, my heart rate while lying down had gone up to 100 and I saw it on the watch and then I freaked out. Um, and then, you know, I called my parents. They're like, OK, calm down. And like literally maybe 10 minutes later, my heart rate went back to like a little bit more normal. But um it's interesting to, to sometimes data is great. And in your case, you know, Caitlin, it's awesome. In my case, it like literally freaks me out for no reason. <laughs> so. 
what a good tool to use um, in in either instance. Moss, I don't know. I don't know what that was. <laughs> um, but Caitlin, at least you're able to bring that to the next one and and show them what will happen. Um, and there are a lot of instances where I think there are biometric um, technologies today that are going to be so helpful going forward. So maybe that's a great solution too. I think what it really does is it helps you know more about your body. And Caitlin, I love that you said like, this is how I am and this is me and I know this. Um, and the more you know your body, you know how you're gonna react to things, you know, how you're gonna recover. So I think that's important and to like write, write that down. And the more information a medical provider has, the more they'll be able to serve you properly. And maybe it's an element of context. I feel like when I've had an issue explaining how I know I'll respond or explaining what I'm feeling, they'll tell you, what are you on a scale of one in 10 with this happy face, whatever. I am able to say, I had appendicitis and this is worse. Or um, I had a car accident and this is a worse feeling than that. And being able to give them that context that showcases exactly the how extreme the pain you're feeling is, I think is also helpful because then instead of it being some vague um, example of one to 10, everybody's scale is different. I'm able to, I guess, communicate better more than anything. I think that leads really well into the inspiration section. Um, the one thing that I'll say from personal experience is it makes it way easier to advocate for yourself if you keep a note on your phone of questions and concerns and things that are just a little bit off um, that you want to talk to your doctor about, right? So I know in the past, I've had moments of, oh, I know I have a question, but I'm going blank in the moment. It's completely slipping my mind if I'm put on the spot. So writing down, okay, I felt kind of weird on this day and I didn't feel back to normal for several hours or I'm having pain that feels like this. Um, what can we do to fix it? Just having a note and being able to point to specifics really does help you feel like you're a little bit calmer and a little bit more knowledgeable in the moment. And, and Moss and Chalin are right. You know your body best. Um, you know when something's off. So definitely don't be afraid to say, no, no, we need to really revisit this if you get a kind of a blow off answer. Otherwise, I will link to a few quick resources that we talked about in this episode. We'll link to the Hopkins Medicine article Moss mentioned above about four tips to talk to your doctor so that you can reference it later. Um, I will also include a link to an article about racial disparities in healthcare in the United States, which goes into detail about the discrepancies in diagnosis and treatment, both for people of color and specifically for Black women. And then finally, we'll link to the Dismissed Project from the Today Show, which we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Um, all of these are just ways for you to feel more informed and more empowered to ask the right questions and to get the treatment you know you might need. And Jill, you want to sign us out? Yes. Thank you to our listeners at home uh, for tuning in today. If you'd like to share any comments, questions, thoughts, or feedback, you can follow and tag us on Instagram or Facebook at We Are Overworked or at Overworked, a podcast on LinkedIn. Um, don't forget to subscribe to our channel to get notified when we release our newest episodes. Thanks.